This episode is brought to you by Thorn, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorn is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their Multivitamin Elite, their Whey Protein, the Super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, Go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, for a one-time purchase. Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. This episode is sponsored by Newcom, and as many of you know, I only bring sponsors onto this show whose products I truly swear by. Now, we are an overworked and underslept population, especially those of us that wear uniform for a living. And trying to reclaim some of the lost rest and recovery is imperative. Now, the application of this product is as simple as putting on headphones and a sleep mask. As you listen to music on each of the programs, there is neuroacoustic software beneath that is tapping into the actual frequencies of your brain, whether to upregulate your nervous system or downregulate. Now, for most of us that come off shift, we are A, exhausted, and B, do not want to bring what we've had to see and do back home to our loved ones. So one powerful application is using the program PowerNap, a 20-minute session that will not only feel like you've had two hours of sleep, but also downregulate from a hypervigilant state back into the role of mother or father, husband or wife. Now, there are so many other applications and benefits from this software, so I urge you to go and listen to episode 806 with CEO Jim Poole. Then download Newcom, N-U-C-A-L-M, from your app store and sign up for the seven-day free trial. Not only will you have an understanding of the origin story and the four decades this science has spanned, but also see for yourself the incredible health impact of this life-changing software. And you can find even more information on newcom.com. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show 20-year veteran of Navy Special Operations and elite skydiver Nick Cush. Now, in this conversation, we discuss a host of topics, from Nick's journey into the military his time at SWIC, the world of EOD, concussion, compassion on the battleground, his own powerful mental health story, his transition, the military-industrial complex, 
post-traumatic growth, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredibly powerful and important conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of almost 900 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Nick Cush. Enjoy. Nick, I want to start by saying firstly, thank you to Travis Denman for connecting us. We had a great, great conversation when he was on the show. And second, to welcome you onto the Behind the Shield podcast today. Well, thanks, James. I appreciate it. Yeah, definitely shout out to Travis and his brother Jericho. Jericho is a good friend of mine. And uh, you know, Travis is doing a lot of good, a lot of good stuff out West. So I like seeing all of his, his updates with him flying. It's great. Absolutely. So firstly, where on planet Earth are we finding you today? Uh, so I'm not too far from you. I'm about an hour and a half or so uh, east of you. So I'm just outside Daytona Beach, uh, Florida, just uh, north of Orlando in a, in a kind of a college town, uh, Deland, Florida. Now, there's a reason why you're there. So for people in Florida that are in your profession, it's, it's the kind of mecca in our, our area of, of the U.S. So talk to me yeah. about why you're in Deland right now. So we chose Deland. Um, I retired in 2016, and and Deland has always been, you know, at least for the past, I don't know, probably nine or ten years before I retired in 2016. It was this mecca of skydiving manufacturing equipment, where they manufacture equipment, and sort of, you know, it, it's arguably kind of like some of the birthplace of the stuff in the states, and a lot of innovation took place in Florida. Some of it in Miami. And then the manufacturer sort of settled here in Deland uh, with the weather, uh, with obviously all of the aviation just outside Embry-Riddle um, and Daytona Beach. And so they get a lot of, you know, aviation uh, professions and aviation education from the engineering department uh, at Embry-Riddle and Daytona Beach. So that's this little hub of a place, but it's also home to a lot of like really, uh, like a really good, you know, private university here. So it's kind of, it's got a college town feel to it. So um, that's a, that's why we settled because when I retired, it was, I'm going to work in the skydiving industry and may as well go right to the, the epicenter of it where a lot of professional athletes or professionals just go to say Nashville, they go to where everything is happening and then something will ideally start to develop. And that's what I did. My son runs track and he actually had a race at Emory Riddle. I think it was April of last year and he does JROTC as well. So when we got there, oh, cool. firstly, he was drooling over the O course that they have there. Sure. But you could yeah. tell there was definitely a military element to it as well. So what kind of groups um, are trying to pull candidates from that school? Well, they're, they're really focused on people that have um, they are, the industry is focused on, I think, what we like to see where I work is like the engineers in, in the aviation world, uh, any aeronautical aviation um, you know, pilots or non-pilots, it really doesn't matter. If, if anybody's got a passion for aviation and aeronautical engineering, there there's a place that the engineers are going to find. Now, granted, 
it's still circled around skydiving. So it's considerably a little bit different, but it still has, uh, it still has its connections for sure. Now I'm jumping way ahead now, but before we start your journey and putting human beings into combat, as we sit here now in 2023, obviously you have, you know, a, a pretty solid aviation background when it comes to flinging yourself from some sort of plane or helicopter. Yeah. yeah. Where do you see warfare going when, as we're seeing more and more drones and, you know, you're, you're close to Emery Riddle, you know, what would you think that the, the combat landscape would look like in say 15, 20 years from now? Ooh, wow. Um, yeah, the, no, that's a, that's a, that's a great, that's a great topic. I think that anybody could probably discuss for hours is, yeah, there's definitely a lot of drone stuff and we're just, we're seeing it, you know, nowadays, even, uh, or recently with the U S shooting down, you know, drones that are flying, uh, out of Iran or anything in, in, in that, in that region, um, for combat, I foresee always, and I'm obviously biased, but I always foresee some type of special operations or asymmetrical warfare is going to be a key thing for us. You know, a good friend of mine uh, who's just on the Sean Ryan podcast back in September, Eric Prince, um, who was so fortunate to be able to spend some time with him last year, was talking about how the key to that stuff is really kind of going back to our special operations uh, roots. And what we used to call while I was uh, well, when I was doing it, it was called foreign internal defense. It was called the FID missions. And so it wouldn't be just a regular two-week J-set where we were doing some type of exercise with a host nation. We would actually embed, um, and the Green Berets historically were notorious. This is their specialty, uh, especially you know post-Vietnam era, and uh, was to, to live, sleep, eat, train with their host nation and actually build up the force in that, in that capacity. So I believe that moving forward, there will always be a place for the special operations forces to do that. I believe that that will be their closest thing to boots on the ground. Our big conventional uh, platform is just it's it's morphed and it's different than it was in 2001 Afghanistan um, than it is today. And then the types of uh, you know, with the Chinese elements and the Middle Eastern innovation and technology that we're up against for sure. Well, you have a very unique perspective pre and post 9-11, so I want to get to your journey into that. But before we even get there, tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did, how many siblings. So I was born in Southern California. Um, I was born in Pomona, which is L.A. County, and then grew up for the first oh, eight or 10 years in a little town, what was a little town called Laverne, just outside like San Dimas. Used to go to, uh, you know, Raging Waters as a kid. You know, it was like this very Southern California American kid lifestyle. My dad worked uh, as a as a uh, uh, financial controller for Toyota dealerships, for big dealerships in the area. I always really good with numbers. He still is. Um, yeah, but now I get to make fun of him a little bit because I've kind of adopted some of that stuff with when it comes to math. Um I have two brothers. Uh, we're all eight years apart, and I'm the middle child. So for those of the people that know me, that makes a lot of sense. Um, <laughs> so my my older brother, uh, he lives now up in uh, up in the Bay Area. Uh, my younger brother lives in uh, Corpus Christi, Texas. Um, my mom, um, she lives in Colorado. So my parents, you know, when we were growing up, we were, you know, we were we were pretty outgoing. Um, we did a lot of, you know, my brother played baseball. I followed that played sports, but we were all, we were kind of far apart. So we weren't, you know, eight years apart. It, we, we almost sort of became babysitters for each other as opposed to really close. As we got older, we obviously got closer. Um, and so it was, um, yeah, it was, it was a, it was kind of a rough childhood. You know, my parents didn't get along for a whole lot of it. 
Uh, they eventually got divorced. Um, and then I lived with my mom till I was about 15 and, you know, a uh, 15 year old from Southern California. Um, growing up in the school system, public school system there was, was kind of rough. Um, but being an 80s kid, um, I grew up really surfing. I found a passion for the water and I, I loved surfing. I ended up moving in with my dad right when I turned 16. Um, so I barely made it through high school because I was always going to the beach and surfing. And I just, uh, I found a, a, a place in my heart for the water. And it was sort of like, I think when I reflect back on it, it was an escape from everything that I, I didn't have um, at home. And you know, I have a really good relationship with my dad and, and, and I still do today. Um, but the spending time in the water was the best place for me. Even then when I connected with some friends, uh, it was really good because we had that camaraderie. I started to kind of form that bond, especially when we would try to really, you know, we'd go camping just and, and make these big surf expeditions and sort of like make some kid mistakes and, you know, kind of get, you know, get in some trouble and things like that. But it, it kind of kept, it built that, that what I call now that early, early brotherhood uh, camaraderie that I, that I, I became it became part of my my bloodline for sure. When it comes to the mental health conversation in the military and the first responder professions, a lot of times we're looking at when we were wearing the uniform, you know, when you were in, you know, Fallujah or when, you know, the Grenfell fire in London or whatever it is. And there's very little conversation about what happened before we put the uniform on. And after almost a thousand conversations now, there's so many of us that were driven to service that did have some things that were you, know, you could you could categorize traumatic when we were younger. So you you touched on you know the the family dynamic. Were there any other ele- excuse me any other elements when you look back now that contributed? Do you think to any kind of highs and lows that you had later in life, or even your your drive to serve? Well, the highs. I mean, obviously, I I really wish you know I wish that I was just telling my wife this the other day. I wish that. The family, the the family bond that we have, the four of us have. I wish that w- I would have had that when I was a kid. And I'm just, I I don't live in resentment of that. I am proud of what we have. I'm just, I am glad that we're able to, you know, between my wife and I, we're able to create an environment that was better than what we had when we were kids. Because that's what we're supposed to do: is leave the world a little bit better than we found it. And so the idea that we're able to do this has been you know, throughout everything that I put that poor woman through, through, you know, the, all the military time and all the deployments and then transitioning out of the military and dealing with my going in every which direction that I could to be able to cope with everything. Um, the fact that we're still here and we have this together is, is remarkable. The putting the uniform on, you know, that was in 19, I got a phone call in March of 1996. It was like, I graduated high school in June of 95 tried junior college, didn't take because I was, I was so busy surfing. And I just, I, I skipped out. I barely made it through high school because I was surfing so much. And then I couldn't stick with junior college when was just working, um, you know, at a restaurant. And then I got a phone call in March of 1996 from a Navy recruiter saying, Hey, you, you popped up on our radar. It looks like you need a job. And so we started some conversations and then it looked like for me, it was a way for me to still to have a job, start a new lifestyle, be part of something that was bigger than myself and keep me close to the water. And so I could keep surfing. So the Navy sounded like that was the way to go. And then as that progressed, getting into a lot of the programs that the Navy have for special operations, that was, that kind of had my name all over it. So. And was SWIC the first, um, 
element that you found yourself in? It was, it was, you know, I, I went to boot camp in October of 1996. Um, and then went to, um, a small little trade school that everybody that, that you kind of pick out, out of the gate, uh, for about three months in Virginia beach. And then, um, I was assigned up to Washington DC when the Bureau of Naval Personnel was actually, uh, based just across the street from the Pentagon. It's now in um, outside Millington, Tennessee. And so I was there just as an E1, E2, kind of an admin waiting to go to a ship. I was supposed to go to a brand new ship that was being built. Down the hall, made some friends. Um, we were all, uh, you know, athletes. We were trying to be, you know, in shape and runners. We were, you know, 20 years old, 19, 20 years old. And those guys were all here going to Buds, dive school, SWIC, EOD or whatever it was. And so I wanted to drive boats because I wanted that's that was what I wanted to do. And this is, you know, this is early, this is mid-1997. And so that was where the SWIC stuff started. And then I put a package in and then went to SEER school January of 98 and then went to SWIC right after that. So for a lot of people listening, you know, we're not super familiar with these roles. Obviously, you'd have to go too in-depth, but give us an overview on what the SWIC role would be. Well, so the SWIC was, it, it's not a new program, but it's, it's a, it was a newer program uh, that they really stood up and focused on. So SWIC stands for Special Warfare Combatant Crew Member or Crewman. And so the history of the SWIC guys or boat guys was, comes from the, um, the brown water uh, Navy guys uh, driving patrol boats in the, river, in the rivers of uh, Vietnam, Cambodia, that, during that time frame in the 60s and 70s. And they, the history even goes back even further into World War II, but that was kind of where we sort of laid our, our claim to was, um, was the, the brown water Navy guys. And so SWIC in the modern time or in the late nineties really stood up as driving boats, driving either 82 foot boats, 36 foot boats, 24 foot boats for the, a, mer- a primary maritime insertion platform for the SEAL teams. <clears throat> so we would be a, paired up with a SEAL team, a respective SEAL team and work with a SEAL platoon and be their maritime insertion asset. And so that to me was a way in to being on the water, training to be a combatant, training to be, you know, a commando, at least a maritime type, because that was that was where that was my bread and butter. And so at that age, I that was perfect for me because I was able to take it all in and work with a lot of guys that have been around and get a uh, get around around for a long time and really get some really good mentorship uh, good and bad mentorship because all mentorship you know can go both ways for sure but it's all good for me um that uh it was a great time to to be raised in my early 20s in that community for sure what's the relationship between swick and the riverines i had two of the guys that are the founders of the u.s side of beaver fit um and they were riverines and i think it was just a short time they stood that back up and then i think they disassembled it again oh okay so well the so the there was a you know when i when i first started in the late 90s there were the two boat units on the respective east and west coast out of virginia beach and out of coronado and then there was one um in panama so that would have been the old sbu 26 and those old riverine guys and so i wouldn't call it that there was like animosity or tension but it was sort of like if you were a riverine guy like you it was you were closer to your roots of the old pvr guys the old patrol boat riverine guys from vietnam and so it was a little bit more like you're a little bit closer to real world action if you're a riverine guy that was sort of like the what it felt like but whenever i met or hung out with any of the riverine guys there was no like you know, beef between, you know, coastal and riverine guys. But the river, if, if you wanted to be a riverine guy, you had to live because it, it later moved to Mississippi. Nobody really wanted to live in Mississippi. So you, like you riverine guys could have it. But the riverine guys did definitely uh, 
continue that that pioneer portion of the of the history of the the Brownwater Navy guys for sure. And what about deployments? I'm assuming we're still pre 9/11 at this point. Where did you mm-hmm. find yourself going under that role? So in 1999, I did my first deployment um, with uh, with one of the West Coast SEAL teams um, with uh, I believe it was SEAL Team Five out to Guam. And so in Guam, there was you know there's a you know little island in the you know in the in the Marianas uh, Island uh, uh, in the Marianas just off the Marianas Trench in the Marianas Island group, and it was more you know 1999 deploying and it's deploying and training, deploying and training, then doing a little bit with the host nation. We did some stuff with the Singaporeans, um, some stuff with the Solomon Islands, and we basically were always doing training, training, training. Um, there was a big exercise called Cobra Gold that I think that is still really big exercise that they work with. You know, uh, and the Koreans, South Korea, you know, and the whole the whole PACOM, the whole Pacific Command region. And it was really it was really cool just because we're now we're closely embedded with our respective SEAL platoon. We're just always doing different stuff. We're doing you know, uh, visit board search and seizure training. You know, training on uh, Gulf oil platforms, doing over the beach inserts, live fire shooting. And it's just, it's like being, doing a workup prior deployment, but now we're on deployment and we're just always kind of training and doing stuff. And um, that was a really, uh, once again, a really good experience. And, you know, I came back from that deployment, not knowing if I was going to continue on, got positioned into a really good detachment, some really good leadership, and then went back on deployment um, the following year um, in 2000 to the to Bahrain. So it was like to the Central Arabian Gulf. And then our deployments were actually doing this was like one of the big pieces that we were actually doing real world uh, operations. It was what we were doing is we would go up to Kuwait and work out of the Northern Arabian Gulf. And as tankers were smuggling oil out of Iraq, out of the KAA, um, out of the, out of a river, out of Iraq, we would do boardings and then seize the ship and then turn the ship over to um, the the, basically the central, the central fleet there to the actual, you know, big Navy. And then they would take control of the ships and then basically seize the tankers and the oil because they were smuggling through running ships dark at night. And so we would go up alongside field platoon would board and then we would basically, they would secure the ship and then we would take them off and then turn the ship over. So that was like really kind of like a, a pretty cool piece of history for me that where there wasn't a whole lot of kinetic or types of you know boarding operations like that going on. And so there was a small footprint of us that got to be able to, we were part of it prior to 9-11. Amazing. Well, well, speaking of 9-11, you're already in the Middle East somewhat. Talk to me about what that day looked like for you, what your 9-11 experience was. But also, I'd love to hear the kind of contrast between how training was viewed prior to that, you know, initiating and then what changed for you in, in the role that you held. Yeah, it was, you know, I had come back from that deployment in December of 2000. And just a few months later, I transferred down to, um, I, I transferred down to Puerto Rico. So I actually was stationed in Puerto Rico for just under three years. And so a lot of the missions that we were doing out of Puerto Rico were your foreign internal defense. We would deploy to, you know, we would just take trips to say Trinidad and Tobago or Peru or Bolivia or Costa Rica and just doing internal training with their host nation, you know, Coast Guard or maritime assets. And so it was on uh, September 12th, 2001, we were supposed to fly to Bolivia to do a three-week, you know, training uh, mission for them. And then uh, September 11th happened and we're just kind of glued to the, to we're on the quarterdeck of the command watching everything kind of unfold on the screen and 
just as anybody can remember that was either that was on active duty knew that things were about to really, really dramatically change. And they did in a heartbeat. But we still had a focus for us as part of the contingent and extremist force for South America, for Southcom. Um, we still had a focus because Colombia was still really hot, you know, during that, you know, during that time, you know, with the FARC and everything that was going on, you know, 20 plus years ago. And there was American hostages in Colombia that we were getting spun up to actually go and be a blocking force for our respective SEAL platoon, you know, for all of these different things. We were also working with Charlie 37, which was the ODA group that was based out of there for South, for Southcom because Southcom what used to be located in Puerto Rico. So there was this big contingent that was still focused on Central and South America, you know, when everything was going on. So while we did spin, spin some guys up and send guys to East Africa post 9-11, uh, just basically for presence, and that was where Djibouti kind of started to stand up, we were still a contingent force for Southcom, and they didn't want us, they, they couldn't just take all assets they could and send them to the Middle East. And plus, I'm a boat guy, and Afghanistan was landlocked. So, so we were, we, you know, there was only so much at that point that, that uh, as a SWIT guy, that we you know, they were part of that, that, that operation, so... I had a guest on K.E. Hernandez who actually came with us on 7X, which we'll get into in a little while, but she used Army ODA. So you just touched on being exposed to the ODA detachment. Talk to me about, you know, what made you transition from the boats to that role? So, you know, over the next couple of years, we're really good. Um, you know, I mean, honestly, if, you know, there not being a war going on, being in the military, being a, a SWIT guy down in Puerto Rico was was one of the best kept secrets. Um, you know, we got a lot of really good training. It was when Vieques was still open, so we were able to do live shooting over at the Vieques Island. Um, and it was a lot, really, a lot of good people. You could get in shape. You could get there was good surf down there. It was just kind of like a dream. Um, but yeah, then the war kicked off and things started getting a little bit, yeah, a little bit real. Um, we did a lot. Still did some more training trips down to Colombia. Did a really good, a really long one, about six weeks to Costa Rica, which I didn't have any complaints about because I was able to find my way, my way, find my way to, to get some surf while I was on that trip. Um, but then we, Puerto Rico, the uh, the naval base was getting bracked, was basically up for getting foreclosure. So the you know Congress approved it and they ended up closing that naval base, and so now. All of us are you know, sitting there like, man, what do I do? At this point, I'd always had this in the back of my mind that I did want to, to put in an explosive ordnance disposal technician package. And the time, it just that it just it opened up. Like there's this path, there's this opportunity. You're either going to go back to San Diego and be, you know, be a boat guy into your into your late 30s and 40s, and, and or you have an opportunity to switch to this community. And then actually get into the fight. And, you know, Iraq had just kicked off. This is March of 03. Afghanistan was still hot. Here's an opportunity to actually get, you know, uh, build a new trade. And that was what I thought was, if I'm going to spend 20 years in this military, I'm going to get as much out of it as I can. So now you switch from the boats. If you wouldn't mind, give us an overview of that role. Yeah, well, so, yeah, so and I knew that the process, the, I was reluctant because I wasn't sure where, like, the, the SWIC leadership was going to sit. You know, um, I didn't want them to think or feel that I was turning my back on the community, but it was really good. To, and, you know, on that last, that last podcast, I couldn't remember his first name, but his, his name was Mike Worlman, who was the swick sort of detailer who detailed all the enlisted guys wherever they were. And I remember the phone call just like it was yesterday when I told him what I was thinking. And he said, he goes, look, man, you've done six years for the community. Like, if you want to go, you can go. And if it doesn't work out for whatever reason, if you fail out or if you get dropped, 
you can come back. I mean, it was really, you know, he's like, you did a really good job for us. And so there's no hard feelings, at least not from, from our office. So, um, and EOD school being, uh, you know, academically challenging, uh, more so academically challenging. It starts with dive school. It's about two and a half months of dive school in Panama city. And I was surprised how, um, there was, you know, the student, the, the class seemed pretty deep. And we lost a lot of students in dive school. They just weren't comfortable in the water. And so it was dive school. I mean, this was, this was my, this was my bread and butter. This is where I was at. And so I felt most comfortable finished dive school. And then EOD school is another, you know, 10, 11 months after that. So we're looking at around 12 with a little bit of a hold time. There was about 14 months of training of school before even getting to an EOD command or an EOD mobile unit and then getting, you know, worked up and then assigned and then deployed. So it was going to be a long time, but um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have traded my timing for anything because it was just, it was perfect. You know, I, I went over to EOD school as an E6, finished EOD school in February of 2005. So that whole cycle of, you know, one year long, you know, year and a half long process. And then eventually found myself in August of 2005 after my first EOD workup and taking it all in and this, this new, new community and new personalities and new mentors, uh, being a new guy all over again. And then assigned to um, SEAL Team 3, uh, which I which later I pretty much found my home for the following, you know, eight, 10 years is where um, I would cycle in and out with those guys. So you talked about um, the diving portion. Mm-hmm. When you were in this new role, was there a skydiving element to it as well? The, there wasn't, not yet. There was, Like with EOD, there is a military freefall aspect to it, but it's not a pipeline portion. So not everybody's going through it. I'd gone to you know, uh, the formerly called Fort Benning, uh, Georgia back in uh, February, 2002 for static line airborne. So it was three weeks there. That was my first time jumping out of a, you know, plane out of, you know, 12, you know, 1200 feet. So. Speaking of that, I was just at, um, a talk here in Ocala. There's, um, uh, IHMC is a big research organization, and they were doing a concussion study on the airborne candidates. So all the jumps, and they would have this kind of ballistic helmet that they could figure out kind of what level of impact they took when they fell. And uh, you know, it was it was an interesting perspective on something that ultimately seems mild. Now, when you're in the role that you're in now, we're talking about obviously explosives and breaching and some of these other elements. Jumping ahead again, talk to me about the TBI and concussion element of the men and women that serve in, in your role. Oh, it's it's significant. You know, at the time when you're standing up against a breach, you're setting a breach or a charge is going off, you know, you're you're young and we de- we hadn't had all these studies yet. Um, it was it was awesome. You're like, yes, this is, you know, this is this is what I just created on the table, or this is what we're doing. And we love, you know, love the fireworks show. And now we're blowing doors open or we're we're getting rid of ordinance. So we're basically practicing demo and feeling, you know, feeling that shock of what these these chemical compounds can do um was, I mean, it's a thrill, it's a rush. Over time and that exposure, we have found ways, you know, thankfully in the military, I'm sure, you know, at this point, granted, I'm a little far removed from it, but I found ways to mitigate that, you know, and what we did in, I'd say, I think 2012, 2013, it was a requirement for us to wear ballistic helmets while we were doing breaching operations. Well, the ballistic was for basically for shrapnel. If you're, you know, if if you're exposed to it, and then any of the door shrapnel or anything comes flying at you, what we started to do was kind of say, fuck that we're going to wear our vented helmets because when that shockwave goes into, it goes everywhere and it goes up into around your head. We don't want that Kevlar 
ballistic helmet keeping in that blast wave. We wanted to vent out. So we would wear our, you know, our, our carbon fiber helmets that we were issued. Um, and so that, that was a way to, to so, I mean, a lot of us were suffering from short-term memory loss and headaches and problems with sleep while we were on active duty. But it's just that we thought, oh, well, like we're sleep deprived and this is just, this is, this is how it is. And we just can keep going. I mean, that's, that, that was, the, that was the beauty part about, about working with so many great guys was that we can operate in the red and we can still operate as hard as we can um, and perform. And so, but yeah, the, the traumatic brain injury is definitely a real thing, especially um, and a real, uh, um, you know, almost, you know, kind of an epidemic that's happening because we had no idea, you know, in the early 2000s, you know, up until just really fairly recently, how bad it really is and what the after effects are. You know, we thought it was just like, okay, well, this is just this, this is part of it. This is hard and it's cool that we're so close to these charges and it, it, it you know, I mean, it gets your blood pumping, man. I mean, it's, it's awesome. So, but we just didn't know it wasn't good for you. I had uh, Sarah Wilkinson on. I think she's been on twice now, I think. Um, but she lost her husband, Chad, you know, who's a SEAL. And then um, yep. Jamie Metcalf's husband, David, as well. And yep. both of them, it seems like there was a TBI element. So when, you know, my profession, we don't get as much of that. You know, we have ceiling fall on our heads. And if we, you know, like for, I did martial arts, so I had a lot of <laughs> impacts from other human beings. But, you know, you and, and law enforcement, those are communities where if we're missing the TBI element in the mental health conversation, someone might be doing all the right therapies and still that one portion is being missed. Yeah, no, I mean, because it develops uh, scar tissue on the brain that it's and it's from what I understand, it's not it's not really reversible. We have to have different coping mechanisms and different methods in order to cope with it, in order to basically get through it. Um, and it develops uh, into hormone imbalances. It it develops into uh, which really then develops into just personality uh, and and uh, mindset imbalances, where it's just it, we it's just functioning on a different on a different plane because of that developed scar tissue for sure. Absolutely. I've had quite a few people say that there's promising um, information coming out as far as psilocybin, not just the mental health kind of, you know, ayahuasca element, but that compound and actually be able to help the trauma from TBI. Oh, I, I mean, not to get too far into it, but um, yeah, I absolutely support that because I think that what, what I've seen that that does is that helps. It doesn't, it, it's another way of coping with it, but it helps remap how we make decisions. It doesn't change the, who you are. And that was never, you know, 3000 plus years ago when they first, you know, when, when tribes in South America were using these medicines uh, was not to change the person, but to help remap their decision-making process. Absolutely. Well, you mentioned Iraq then. So 9-11 happens, you change into the EOD. I got that anagram right this time. Um, Roll now. Where did you find yourself in Iraq? So I found myself in Iraq. You know, first I, you know, was part, paired up with SEAL Team Three in August of 2005, and then I met the platoon. And when I met the platoon, it was a really unique, uh, really unique experience. That first day, walking into the land warfare facility out there in out in Nyland, California, was um, I got there when everybody was still sleeping. They were already they were already had had been there for a week training. And this guy's walking down the hall, and I'm in, you know, I'm in. I'm in uniform because I thought that's what I was supposed to be is in uniform driving out there. And the guy walking down the hall walks up to me and, I, and I'm like, well, no shit. That's like Tony. So Tony was uh, a team guy that was on my first deployment to Guam in 1999. And he walks down the hallway and he's like, Nick, 
said, yes. He goes, are you, you're an EOD guy? I said, yes. He goes, you're in Charlie Platoon. I said, okay. And so that was that first, you know, so he already knew me from this had been you know, six, seven years prior to then putting me into this, into his platoon, which turned out to be, you know, Jocko Willink's task unit with Charlie and Delta platoon. Leif Babin was the OIC, was the officer in charge of the platoon. And so those dynamics really started to kind of, to really take some really good shape. You know, I got really good mentorship from those guys as well. You know, guys like Chris Kyle, Ben Tedder, um, Bob Holland. I mean, the, the list goes on and on and, you know, formed really long life standing, you know, friendships. I'm still really good friends with Jake Kinebaum and Bob Holland and a lot of those great guys. And we were getting spun up to go to Iraq and we were going to be doing a type of mission that was like not all that sexy. It was like, we were just going to be doing some uh, PSD, personal security details, what we were going to be tasked with. And I think we got that tasking right around February. And then um, we had about a month and a half off. I went to military free fall school, you know, sort of on my pre-deployment leave. So I got a seat at free fall schools three weeks and out in San Diego. And that was where I got my first dose of jumping out of a plane, at least in free fall capacity. When we get to the North Island to take off on the C-17, um, we were told that we were going to Al-Ambar province in Ramadi. And we were going to basically be conducting um, into the you know the Sunni Triangle, conducting asymmetrical and kinetic operations uh, with the Marine Corps, with uh, with the Army, and basically being this big assist uh, as advisors with the Iraqi uh, Army, the Iraqi Jundis. And so um, immediately while we're on the tarmac, we're like, "Oh shit! Like this is going to be pretty bad." And we thought we were just doing security detail, but Okay, so the quick shift in all of our sort of demeanor started to kind of happen um, that day. And so we, yeah, we found ourselves in Iraq within the first two weeks. Um, we were out doing kinetic operations. We were just getting a feel, doing some atmospherics and getting a lay of the land and just pouncing on targets, um, taking intel and, yeah, and and really doing our thing, what we were supposed to be doing and, you know, uh, going after bad guys and pissing people off. But Jocko's been on the show a couple of times. Leif, you know, we were talking about him just before we hit record. Amazing guy. Loved having him on as well. Great guy. Um, but I want to ask you a different question because, I mean, for a sure. start, obviously those deployments have been story told quite a lot now, that mm -hmm. specific area. However, I think the really valuable perspective that most people don't get, and I'll preface it with this, um, when we're back home, when you're a civilian, you get a very polarized view of war through your televisions, either kill them all, let God sort them out, stack bodies, or they're all baby killers. And in the middle are the men and women, arguably sometimes children, <laughs> that we send overseas to fight for our country. So first part of a two-part question, regardless of the politics that sent you to, in this case, Iraq, was there a point where you started witnessing you know, horrors, atrocities, whatever it was, where you realized, okay, there, there were some, some horrendous people that needed to be taken care of? Oh, without a doubt. Um, you know, yeah, regardless of politics, you know, at the time, you know, in being in my mid late twenties and most of us were all of that age, you know, mid late twenties. And we were, you know, older than what the, the guys, you know, were, uh, Sebastian Younger, uh, followed at Restrepo. I mean, a lot of those guys were 19, 18, 19 years old, um, and over there for a long time, man, I mean, a good, you know, year plus, um, the, the atrocities of, of it definitely, Rex, it it impacts your hope in humanity when you see the way that 
other people are and the, that other cultures are and how things just seem to be okay. And I don't mean to sit there and say like, Hey, we should Westernize all this, but there's just some certain dignity that you got to have. You can't treat people like this. And there comes, you know, to a certain, there's, there's gotta be a line um, sort of drawn in the sand. And we were, you know, this was in 2006. And so it wasn't something we were really ever concerned about being getting in trouble for interfering but there's a line that's got to be drawn where the culture, your own culture has to be implemented when it comes to the human decency. Now, granted, that can be a little bit subjective, especially in today's day and age, but there's got to be a line that where you've got to impose some human decency in how you treat people, uh, no matter what. I mean, we can look, you know, we can, we're, we're directed at what we're looking at, you know, on on Instagram, on, on, on the news channels and things like that. But if you actually really look or you're able to, to see some of these countries that are just basically suffering from total genocide because of their religion, it's, I mean, it's absurd that you've got to implement your culture in order for some human decency to restore your hope in humanity. There's no question about that. And so there was, yeah, I mean, it was really bad. I don't get into any, you know, gory details or anything like that, but I was, I was, uh, I, it was it, being in the military in combat with your brothers, shoulder to shoulder, and seeing the way that other cultures and other people sort of live and operate, that you really appreciate being an American, for sure. Absolutely. Well, the other side of the coin, another perspective that we really don't get, kindness and compassion amidst these, these battlefields. Um, I've had so many people tell just incredible stories, whether it's our own, you know, men and women in uniform, whether it's the indigenous people that you guys were over there to protect. So what were some of the kind of moments that really stuck with you as you transitioned out? You know, I remember, I remember going, we were doing a morning daytime clearance and I remember going and usually in the morning, it's really, it's, um, there's not a lot of tension uh, in the air. It's usually in the afternoons and evenings during prayer time. The mornings we do these clearances and it's more of like a show of force. It's a more of a show of, a, of presence. And we go inside in this building. We're going inside several, several buildings in this ur very urban uh, neighborhood. And there's this dad um, standing up, not a threat, just standing there with his daughter. And, uh, I remember standing there seeing like he was, he, he put on this face, like he was trying to be happy to see us. He was, I mean, he was scared. She was scared. Um, but I, and I, this was before I was a father and I remember his concern for her safety. And I broke out a little uh, glow stick, you know, kids love these things at Halloween. And I broke out a little glow stick. I think it was green or, you know, whatever. And I broke it and I gave it to her. And it wasn't that she was just showered with happiness, but it was more just like, we're not here to disrupt your way of life. It's like, you know, and I could see this, this compassion and this care of this father that he had for these, you know, these men in, you know, in, in ballistic, uh, you know, attire and guns and, and all this shit and all these people coming in. And I just, it, that was the, that was a moment that I reflect back on sometimes. It's like, if that were me in my house and people were coming in, the way I would deal with that would have been drastically different. Um, but the compassion that he had for his daughter um, definitely sat with me for a long time. 
So I think this is an important conversation. You hear that over and over again. I think one of the things that the media does that's very irresponsible is paint the picture that we're at war with Iraq. We're at war with Afghanistan, where you know the truth is there's the average person is just trying to get on with their life, but there are you know extremists in their country that are terrorizing them. So, you know, when you hear about what the average person was like in in these countries and you know, the humanity, the shared experience of the the soldier and and the the resident. I think it's an important perspective that we just don't hear very often. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. You know, like you know, before Donald Rumsfeld, you know, passed away, he, you know, there was a documentary that he did. It was called, uh, I think, the um, the uh, the unknown knowns, and it was a really good documentary. And he admitted to some of the mistakes. I mean, it's like, yes, they made some mistakes, and people died, and but these these were at the time of the intelligence and the data that they were provided, this was the best decision. These were the, a series of decisions that were made um, for us to go and execute. Um, yeah, they made, they made some mistakes. And it's our job to go, you know, go through and execute as cleanly and as effective as can be. It's not, it wasn't a, a uniformed war against Iraq. It really wasn't a uniformed war against Afghanistan. Um, it just, it doesn't happen that way. It's, it's kinetic and it's asymmetric and it's guerrilla warfare on a completely different playing field. Um, and it continues to adapt and it, it's this insurgency, uh, type of revolutionary side of mindset that is just, it is not easy to play that chess game at all. Now with KE, I think there was another guest, I forget, I'm blanking who it was now, but someone else was in the EOD role as well. Um, and they were talking about almost the the chess game they were playing with the bomb makers. And when, you know, when you guys found a solution, then they would then one up and figure a way around that. So what was your perspective when there was such a, a big IED element to, to both of these conflicts through your EOD lens? Oh, I was terrified. I mean, it was, I was, I was terrified. You know, the, the EOD role that I had with the SEAL teams is not EOD work every single day. Whereas where some EOD guys were deployed into a capacity where they were doing response work, where they would be sitting at the FOB or the forward operating base, get a phone call from an element that's out in the, out in the, um, outside the wire and say, Hey, we have an, uh, we have a suspect IED. All right, guys, load up the truck and then go prosecute an IED. As simple as that, that sounds, it's very complex and very difficult um, and very dangerous. My role as an EOD guy was the we sort of adopted this adage of a, we're to clear the impedance, any impedance to assault that has like an explosive component to it, an unknown explosive, an improvised uh, explosive device. Uh, no, I was terrified. Um, you know, while being part of the assignment with the SEAL platoons, it was great because I got to be uh, on the assaults. I got to be on the offensive, whereas instead of being an EOD guy waiting for the phone call, that's more of a response to something. So I liked the part of it as being uh, part of the offensive. And so I sort of stuck with that the rest of my career um, as an EOD guy. The, uh, but I was, I was scared. The, the thing was, is that in, um, I adopted this, this mindset to where, and I used it later on when I would train other EOD guys as I got older in the community was that I didn't want to make a mistake that got someone else um, killed or hurt. Like I'm okay. Like if wrapping my head around, I'm going to go to work on something. And if it kills me, that'll suck. Fine. But just as long as I don't get anybody else hurt. So that was, it had to do with the training that I gave the guys. When you see me take a knee, get the fuck out of the room, like leave. Because if something goes off, 
it's it's me. This is my job, and it's not yours to take the blast for it. Um, and so that was, um, but yeah, I mean, every target, you know, I I would hear over the radio EOD up, and I'm like, oh shit, you know, like I get <laughs> pumped that it's like I get to go to work, but then again, it's like, oh man, what am I going to find? And so, you know, the first time I got a call was on our first target in Iraq, and I got a call was like EOD up, and I'm like, door. And I go over and it was this ceiling fan underneath the stairs. And I'm like, what's up? He's like, I don't know. That looks weird. Like it is weird to put a ceiling fan underneath the stairs, but it's just a <laughs> ceiling fan. <laughs> so he, he, he said, well, fuck you then. You know, it was, it was good, but it was like, that was the first time that it was like, okay, it's on. And so throughout that, you know, any of those deployments, it's like, yeah, I was, I mean, I was afraid, man. I didn't, I didn't want to get in at any of my, any of my, my friends and my teammates get killed or hurt, you know, because of something that I was responsible for. I mean, I think that's kind of, that's everybody. So, yeah. When I was listening to you on the EOD podcast and you said this same thing about wanting to make sure that your mistake didn't get someone else killed. I don't know if I just picked on something that wasn't there, but it almost sounded like there was a real raw emotion behind that statement. Yeah. So, you know, I, I came back, from those deployments, there's a lot of combat lost, um, lost more guys than we, we thought, you know, we weren't supposed to lose anybody because we've got, you know, we have, um, the tactical advantage. We have the equipment, we have nighttime, we have night vision equipment, you know, we have all these things that are advantage, but yet we still, you know, we're able to find that, find out that we were human. Um, so I wanted to package everything that I learned and pass that down. And, and it, it wasn't just the actions on because actions on, it, they change in even from region to region, whether that be in the West and Al Ambar or in Baghdad, you know, they operate and they have different equipment. They have, they're able to get different technology for their IEDs and, and weapon systems in different areas. So it was different, but what I was trying to adopt was a mindset passed down. Um, and that was just, take care of your guys better. I mean, it, better than you take care of yourself. And that's the mindset. And that's the, that's the, what brotherhood really is, is putting the, you know, the safety and well-being of others above your own. Um, and to, yeah, just to not do something so ballsy that it was, it's irresponsible and you get someone else killed. Um, it was, it, it is emotional because I, I, you know, I got out of it um, unscathed and I never, any of the decisions I made, I made, you know, for the team. It wasn't just for, for me and my safety was to make sure that I didn't put my hands on something that I came across until everybody was out. Um, because I didn't, I, I can't imagine someone, one of the, another EOD guy or living with themselves after that and knowing that if you, you know, you made a mistake. And you got someone fucking blown up and killed um, would just be really, really hard. And so that was, um, it still is something that, 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 that stays with me for sure. Um, I just, even with the work that I do now is to make sure that everything is covered the best I can. So that way, anybody that, that I'm working with is as safe as possible um, because I just can't be in that position. Um, if it, yeah, safety begins. You know, they, they like like to the officers and everybody used to like to say, "Well, safety is paramount," and we would say, "Ah, safety's third. You know, get it done." But at the end of the day, 
you, if you're going to do something risky, just make sure that it's just you and you don't take down your brothers uh, for, for fucking up. So. I had, I think it was Alistair McCarthy, McCarthy that was on the show, a fellow Brit and then base jumper. Um, and we were talking about diligence and he said, uh, I forget, I'm paraphrasing, but he said something like, you know, most people will say, well, you know, as, as long as I'm 95% there, then we're good. He said, in the world of base jumping, there is no 95%. It's got to be 100. And what I see in my profession, there are some phenomenal firefighters that understand that lives are at stake in our job, you know, our own lives, the lives of men and women to the left and right of us, and obviously who we serve. But there's also a real cancer of complacency, and that can be organizational, can be personal. Um, that drives me crazy because lives are at stake, you know, lives depend on us. So through this, you know, journey as you get through Iraq and ultimately Afghanistan and out into to the skydiving world, how have you managed to to fight complacency yourself and then also culturally with the people around you? So um, the fighting complacency has actually not been, um, it hasn't been too hard. Um, I think that what I've done is with the the types of the types of the type of work that I do and the type of jumps that I do or, or you know can be really uh, sketchy at best um, sometimes and you know really you know high altitude testing new parachutes um, heavy weights testing new parachutes um, it's I'm very calculated uh, when it comes to when it comes to this kind of when it comes to these types of operations uh, these types of you know events testing events or even just basically executing very similar and we'll talk about later in the triple seven very calculated when it, when what does it look like? What is what is what is X look like, or how does it what does it take to get there? What are going to be the effects of it? So when when I talk about the effects of it, it's like doing you know deploying a parachute at a at a you know at a moderate to heavy weight at high altitudes at high speeds. That's going to fucking hurt, and that's going to hurt the body, and it's going to be sixty below. So there's a lot that you have to contend with. So the prep work that goes into it is trying to think of every single every single factor that contributes to success or failure. And so I think that that's what like a lot of the EOD work and my experience in EOD really has provided for me is I'm very, very calculated. I'm not going to do anything that is just like, it doesn't make any sense or the reward is minimal for the, for the, for the risk. Um, you know, for testing, it's like, I have to go through, you know, I, my, my team and I go through a lot of arduous testing um, when it comes to the engineering aspect and the design of the parachutes, the, the intricate design of the parachutes in order to minimize the impacts that the test jumper myself gets and receives, you know, the opening shock. Um, so it's very, very calculated. So I don't feel there's a whole lot of complacency. And I think that a little big driving force behind that was that I look at it like I survived multiple combat deployments. I retired at 39 I'm 46 now. I'd like to see 76. So I'm going to take care of my body and take care of my mind by basically, if we're going to do these high risk things at my age, then they're going to be very calculated for the best, best possible outcome. I, it, it happens. I get hard hits all the time, shitty landings, and it sucks. But I'm able to keep going at because I feel like that we're very calculated in looking at the risks and really doing a lot of like kind of risk management, risk mitigation. 
Um, I'm the, a lot of the operators that this equipment is going to be going to are, you know, 12, 15 years younger than I am. Some of them are, you know, a little bit, a little bit less, but um, I've got to stay, I, I have to stay in shape so I can perform as close to that, you know, as close to that top tier as I can, um, you know, considering the body degradation at 46 years old, but I try to do the best I can. So that way I can mimic the results. Well, while we're on the kind of training philosophy conversation, again, in the EOD podcast, you touched on um, the importance of the basics. And it's something that I talk about a lot in the fire service. There's a lot of shiny objects. There's a lot of, you know, videos on Instagram of firefighters doing, you know, poodle tricks for lack of a better word. Um, and that's great if you are an absolute master of the bread and butter movements that we have to do. But talk to me about your philosophy, especially as you transitioned into the, the training role when it comes to mastery of the basics in your profession. Well, I think that if we always remember the basics, um, then the advanced movements will then start to reveal themselves. I think what we had a tendency to do was get in, be in so, be in such, uh, in such a rush to be the best, to be the fastest, to be the quick, you know, the quickest, the cleanest, the most efficient, get in and get out. But if we go back to the very rudimentary basics and use those as stepping stones, the only reason that we're you know here is because of the of the foundation that was laid and the framework that was created in order for us to accomplish, you know, be so fast. Because we would find that um, doing you know doing a lot of the our training runs that we would be in such a hurry that we would we would uh, we would say no more comms, stop talking because people would yell and people would be all over the radio. And so stripping that down, going back to the basics, using hand and arm signals and normal two-man, four-man room clearance type of mi- mindset really helps reset, uh, reset everything because everybody's already made it through to different types of basics. So we don't have to be so advanced. We have to master the basics. That then in turn reveals your uh, expertise and that you're able to fine tune those things. And so we really carry that over into the civilian world that I work in, in this industry is that keeping it simple and mastering the basics and understanding what these different types of components do and why they do it and stick with those things and evolve and innovate from that, as opposed to completely coming out of a different direction. I know you found yourself, as I said, in the kind of training development role and obviously ultimately in the skydiving area. One thing I'm always intrigued is the the EOD, in this case, you know, the the special operator, special forces, soldiers perspective of the first responder professions. Because in many, many of the conversations that I have with them, they kind of hold us to the same standard. And obviously we're protecting their families when you guys are overseas. Oh, yeah. However, behind the curtain it's a very different scenario as far as our support, training, equipment, et cetera, than some of the tier one groups. So I don't know if you've had any perspective in law enforcement or fire. And if you have, have you noticed any uh, inequities between maybe some of the training and equipment that you were afforded versus the people on the street back home? Oh, I think that the, from, you know, I work with, uh, with some, with a few guys down at, uh, in Lee County, the Lee County Sheriff's Department SWAT team. And, uh, <laughs> those poor guys um it feel it seems like you know they are stuck with a lot more administrative work than we were ever stuck with uh then and that was that that um that sucks <laughs> so these guys are not like able to pound on doors do call outs and things like that uh that do their job because they're stuck in a lot of the bureaucratic stuff because 
And in my in my perspective is that, you know, with fire, firefighters as well as obviously with the police departments and sheriff's departments throughout the country, is that there's more of a spotlight on your guys's daily operations. When you're going into a fire, when you're going in onto a target to, you know, to issue a warrant or anything like that or arrest somebody, there's more the potential of a spotlight and people, you know, fellow Americans seeing your actions on target are way more prevalent than us. I mean, granted, you know, when video gets out of us from, you know, from, you know, from any type of ISR platform or things like that, that's, that would piss us off. So you guys definitely have a lot of our sympathy and appreciation for, for having to deal with, you know, being operating within the confines of the audience themselves, you know, so, you know, we operate, the idea was that nobody sees us. So. When I think of, again, the, the, that group within the SEAL teams, you're looking for the the best new techniques, the best equipment, you know, the the best nutrition, strength and conditioning, mindfulness training, yeah. et cetera. And I think that this is something that we need to elevate ourselves in the first responder professions. Like we are asked to do, oh, yeah. you know, from zero to a hundred in, in a, a numerous amount of ways. I mean, just for example, my shopping mall here in Ocala, Florida, a few days ago, two days before Christmas, someone was executed in front of everyone that was Christmas yeah, shopping. I saw that. I you know, saw so that. Yeah. all the first responders that responded there were probably sitting around waiting for a call. And then all of a sudden they're doing a manhunt and trying to, you know, clean a dead guy off the floor. So, um, you know, for me, I feel like we need to kind of lean into the ethos from your profession more as, as far as hiring standards, as far as fitness standards, but also equipment and training as well. Oh, I couldn't agree more. I feel, I think that it's underappreciated and it's, it's, it's not looked at as much as, because it, it really wasn't trendy. I mean, it was, it was, it made sense to, to like, look at the military, look what they've done, look what the, all these men and women have done for the past 20 plus years in Iraq and Afghanistan and in Syria and in Africa and everywhere. So like, let's throw all this attention, you know, to them. Whereas I'm sure guys, you know, like in, in hot spots of fire departments and police departments are kind of like, well, yeah, we support that, but you know, we could probably use some of that human performance initiative as well. I'm sure. Um, and I think, you know, with the matter of speaking, I think, I think it's coming, you know, I think that like the guys that I work with down in South Florida, they do have a small human performance stuff that they're working on. You know, they've got, they're doing hormone levels and hormone treatment stuff with those guys or at least monitoring and advising. So some of that, it looks like it's starting to take off. I think that traditionally and notoriously, it's always been sort of behind, um, you know, your tier one to tier three military operators, uh, the local first responders and treatment and care has been just a little bit behind of uh, the military. And I think that that's like, that's something that I, I think we can look back on the past 30 or 40 years and sort of see that. I mean, in the nineties, there was no humor performance stuff. You know, it's like, with being a SWIT guy, it's like you're you're going to be you know three inches shorter if you do this for 15 years. That was a big incentive for me to get out of the, stop riding boats because I don't you know back and knee back knee and neck problems. So the you know those guys have done a whole lot of studies because there was people that were that study cases over 15 years of riding boats, and I think that it's only you know I think that only a matter of time before you know the, your local fire departments and your police officers and sheriff's department actually do start to get some of those treatments and some of that attention. Absolutely. Well, I want to get to the transition out and then obviously we'll talk about 7X and uh, uh, 7x7. Before we do though, you, you talked about Iraq. What were the contrasts between Iraq and your time in Afghanistan? Oh man, that was really interesting. You know, because th I had, there was a bit of a hiatus before I went, you know, after I left um, 
Iraq for my last time and then went, went to Afghanistan. Um, the Afghanistan piece, as you heard before, was really unique for me because um, I was in the training detachment uh, in the urban combat cell. So I was basically responsible for giving, you know, EOD training to EOD technicians that were assigned with their SEAL platoons during urban combat. So there's a huge opportunity to really help shape those guys, their expectations and, and get some really good training for them so they could provide training for their respective SEAL platoons. And so I was able to pull off going to Afghanistan as an augment, as an augmentee, which is most, as a lot of people know, if you're able to pull that off from being in a training, you know, a training command to go on deployment is gold because <laughs> You kind of miss most of the workup. <clears throat> if you have good rapport with the guys, you don't really like you're gonna you're gonna get there and you're gonna have good rapport with them already. So I went over there and um, you know took a couple of guns with me and some equipment and some cold weather gear and was basically just operating out of a basically that big backpack. So that way I can move around by myself uh, from from a couple of different locations. Um, I remember going into the dining facility uh, for the first time in Afghanistan. Now, the last time I had been into it in a dining facility overseas was in Iraq, um, yeah, outside of uh, Biop, um, when we were working Solder City, and so or Biop meaning Baghdad International Airport. And you remember seeing, and this is really prevalent uh, in Al Ambar in 2006 in, in Iraq, when you would sit down at the dining facility and you would look over at other people in their their faces, they they would just they were just staring. It was just a very thousand yard stare. Like they just came out of the shit or they were just getting ready to go back into it. And they're just basically trying to get some caloric intake and get some energy and get some fuel. But they were, there were, there was hard to see that. That was not the case in Afghanistan in 2014. Um, I mean, it looked like a, you know, a shopping mall food court. And it was just, it was really a stark reality for me that um, to see the difference between guys and girls that were connect, doing conduct, conducting conventional kinetic operations, and then a few several years later retrograde and pulling, getting ready to pack things up, cutting vehicles in half, and getting knowing that the withdrawal is coming. And so that was a huge difference. However, our kinetic operations were still very prevalent. Something that I didn't do very much uh, that I can't even recall anything that that stands out in Iraq was we never really did any helicopter inserts. So getting on 46s um, and, and flying, you know, to target and then walking, you know, five, eight kilometers. It was not something that was all that common for us in Iraq. So that was a huge difference uh, for me. And then, you know, going to 8,000 feet above sea level, you know, takes some getting used to in January in Afghanistan. So there was definitely the, the playing field was different for me going over there. Um, and, uh, but the guys, man, the guys, the guys were. I mean, it was it was remarkable to be with the with that task unit and that that troop and those those guys from the platoon and with the 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 um, the tenth special forces AD, ODA group that was out there with us. Um, They're just a lot of great people doing a lot of really good op- really good kinetic operations. It was fantastic. I loved it. A lot of people that have come on the show that served in Afghanistan that, you know, obviously lost friends in Afghanistan. This, of course, applies to Iraq as well. But, you know, that particular withdrawal, the way it was done, I think, I don't think there's a single person out there, I hope there's not, that doesn't realize that they made a huge difference while they were there. And even like you said, if it's handing a scared girl a glow stick all the way through to building schools and, you know, all the things that you guys did. However, you know, that sudden just the evacuation, I think, left a lot of our veterans feeling, you know, 
a, a multitude of emotions. I think it contributed probably to a lot of of mental, you know, health challenges as well. You know, what was it for? And you know, the 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 um, survivor element. I mean, all these different you know things. And I think organizational betrayal too. You you were part of this tribe. Oh, yeah. You wore this flag on your shoulder, and then the very organization that you represented did something like that. So, I mean, I was going to say without loading the question, clearly I just loaded <laughs> already, but what is your perspective of that? Because just like the pandemic, for example, people are like, oh, I don't want to talk about it anymore. I think it's important because these are lessons that we can learn and maybe apply, God forbid, if there's another sort of combat, apply that to the next one. So kind of giving you the microphone, what is your perspective of, of Iraq and or Afghanistan as we sit here outside both those countries? Well, these are going to be, uh, you know, hopefully they're going to be huge lessons learned in a hundred years. You know, we look at, you know, Washington crossing the Delaware, you know, 200 years ago as, le as at least like lessons learned in military history. We can look at the long shanks, you know, and look at the way that they operate and they did kinetic operations, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years ago. So like this, these mistakes, you know, or hopefully the way that they're going to be perceived is like these lessons learned uh, are, should be definitely, you know, lack of a better way of putting it in the textbooks going forward for military history and tacticians as a whole. The withdrawal of Afghanistan, um, specifically because it was so abrupt, there was a lot of like this, uh, Vietnam type of, uh, feel to it. This, you know, granted when we pulled out of Vietnam, you know, I, I, I was born in 77. So obviously that the, uh, withdrawal out of Vietnam, but those videos and the way that it was depicted and depicted today um, was reminiscent of that. I can only imagine, you know, being in Afghanistan during the withdrawal. I can only imagine being in Vietnam during that withdrawal, during that hasty withdrawal. We know deep down what the score is. You know, it's really easy for us as Americans and policymakers to get us into and into conflict and disrupt things and basically turn them into our operating system very, very quickly. What it appears to me, what we suck at is actually rebuilding and building and then leaving and continuing to support. I mean, because if we look at Afghanistan now, it's like you know, how much we're funding the Taliban right now to be able to fight Al Qaeda in Iraq or in Afghanistan. It's just, it, it's mind blowing to me. So that hasty, hasty, that, that incredibly, hasty withdrawal from Afghanistan um, just does not seem like it was very well calculated at all. And me being me, a very calculated person, I don't feel like we were looking at as a whole the first, second, third order effects of what we were doing. We were trying to basically appease the American public by stop spending money in Afghanistan, stop spending money in Iraq and get out of it. We were there. We've been there for over 20 years, you know, 20 plus years. Let's get out. And so that was sort of the popular thing to do, but it, it just surprised me how we were not very calculated as a as policy enforcers and policy makers to do that. And it just, it, it's, I mean, I can't imagine like Jericho was actually there, you know, Travis's brother was there, um, you know, when all that was going down, he was there reporting. And so that, that hit him pretty hard. And when I, when I talked to him, you know, talking to someone that was there um, out of all the combat operations he had done, that was one of the, that, that was not a combat operation. That was one of the hardest ones. And the anniversary always kind of, kind of gets to him. I mean, that's, um, that was fucked.
how it went down for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, one kind of one element or one more area on this topic. When I think about the pharmaceutical industry oh. and the nation's health, <laughs> I'm just, just open Pandora's box here. Um, That's a know, good one. Me, as someone who's come from you know wellness background and fitness and all that stuff, clearly there is an element where if we make Americans sick but keep them alive, you have an incredible consumer. Well, with that same lens, when you look at war and you make uniforms, MREs, weapons, whatever it is, there's an element that wants war to continue so that certain groups can make a huge amount of money. Now, that's not that's separate from protecting our country and being there when we're absolutely needed. Oh, no, it's a war machine for sure. Yeah. So how do we you're king for a day? How do we increase accountability so that we don't allow certain groups to keep forcing us into conflicts that we may or may not need to be in in the first place? Um, a very deliberate and calculated level of transparency. I just don't think that we are having the right conversations. Um, maybe we are having the right conversations, but we're not being transparent. And that usually, that breeds itself, right? So calm breeds calm and honesty breeds honesty. So, you know, if if we can have some actual King for a day, transparency, um, I think is I, I, you can't go wrong there. Um, but what we what we have now is king for a day is uh, where's the money at? Where does the money go? I mean, you talked about the pharmaceutical company companies in the pharmaceutical industry. That's a money thing. You know, that's that's exactly where it's at. And I remember, you know, not to get too much on the pharmaceutical stuff, but the uh, you know uh, Lipitor and cholesterol meds, same thing. You know, my dad was on Lipitor and he's like, fuck this. I've got all these different side effects. It's like, and then later on, you know, after he got off of it, these cholesterol companies, these companies making this cholesterol medication were like, Hey, you know, this is a great way to basically pump meds into our society because everybody has, you know, the, the number one killer is heart, is heart disease. So I think that if we could just be a little bit more transparent and be welcome to the vulnerability um, and be, and accept that. I think that if you can have a little bit of like self-compassion as opposed to being selfish, I think is going to really, really help. And I really think that a lot of policymakers could benefit from some of the, uh, the, the treatments that veterans are getting um, with hormone treatment, psychedelic treatment, and actual like no kidding, like getting in touch with who you are kind of treatment. Uh, moving forward. I think that congressmen, senators, and cabinet members could benefit from that kind of treatment themselves. Just my opinion. <laughs> no, I agree 100%. When we talk about the mental health crisis, obviously, we, we focus on, you know, whether it's you know the addiction we see on our streets and homelessness, whether it's our veterans and first responders. But there was a guy, a sad guru who was on Joe Rogan's podcast, and he made it was almost in, in passing, he made a comment, but Joe was talking about, I think it was drug companies. And he was like, no, even them. And I was like, I've never thought about that. There's yeah. the only way that you can sleep at night knowing that you pulled out of a country and betrayed all the the allied nations that were there and all the people that serve in uniforms is you have to be the sociopath. The only way you can sleep at night knowing that drug prohibition is an epic failure and yet, you know, your your prisons are full of people that were caught with marijuana 20 years ago oh. is you have to be a sociopath. So our mental health crisis I think extends deeply into our politicians and owners of news stations and other you know, drug company um, execs and people that should not be able to sleep knowing the unethical practices of the organizations they work for. I couldn't agree more. 
But yeah, but I think it boils down to money, power, and position of authority for sure. Yeah, because you know, you know, a king, you know, uh, the a king can move a man, right? And so that's the mindset: is I can just move all of these different pieces, these four hundred, you know, million pieces that I have in the United States. I can move all this, and I can adjust all this. But what we have to really look at is that, like, you're in your own good keeping alone, and you can't say, you know, before you know, religious, religious stuff aside, but when you go before, uh, when you die, these are your decisions that you have made, you know? So if people are going to basically do all of these puppeteer work and all these different things in order for their own benefit, you've got to be able to make your own decisions and be good with what you're, with what you're doing. And so I, I wholeheartedly agree with you, man. Like, I, I think that if I was, I couldn't ever do that and, and be in good, in good keeping alone. Uh, with myself and sleep at night for sure well speaking of mental health one area that i think is very jarring for military and first responders is the transition out whether it's injury whether it's being fired whether it's simply retiring we and you talk about sebastian younger he's been on the show several times you know that tribal element is so important you know we had a purpose we were part of a tribe you know we we knew when we went home that day that we made the world a little bit better and then you find yourself the other side. Your ID doesn't work. You know, you're not around the same people anymore. Some people transition well. They already have those tribes set up for moving out. Some people, it's a little bit more difficult. What was your transition story yourself? I was, I mean, it was, it was terrifying. Um, but just like me, um, I tried to be very calculated in what I was going to do. Um, you know, leaving Coronado and leaving Southern California after being there for so many years and having so many close friends and somebody and within the community and having some place to always go with, with people, um, was gone. We moved to Florida and it's like just a few, you know, family members that live out here and starting over out here in Florida, um, and trying to basically make a name for myself in the industry and work in the industry. Um, I say make a name for myself in the industry. That's not really correct. I think it's really just contribute to the industry because what I do for a living is, and this is how I, uh, how I sit comfortably with what I do for a living is that I'm helping equip still because like almost as if I was still on active duty, helping train and equip military service members, you know, not just us, but also our allies. So there's a big part of that for me that I'm still kind of this active duty sort of training, you know, component that in itself has definitely helped with your trend with my transition because I'm still around some of the boys, not like, you know, it is, you know, when I'm, when I was back home in, in San Diego or, you know, back in Coronado, but it's really close to it. And so yeah, I've been out, I've been retired for seven years and the first few years were really, really hard. Um, Cause I, I was, I was struggling to, um, to find purpose. And on a, you know, on the daily, on the daily was, was tough uh, to find out I'm 39 years old. Who am I? Why am I here? I still have a lot of life left over, you know, le life left over and I don't know what to do with it. Um, and I've got this, I've got a family, but I'm still so, I, you know, I mean, I was looking at like, I'll deploy again. Like, I don't care. Like, you know, whatever it is, I would, you know, I was just looking for something to grasp a hold of. And it was really hard to find anything that was not, um, I, it was really hard to find a grip hold, uh, on something. And then, um, yeah, a few years into it, I finally did. And then I realized, you know, that my family has been there the whole time and I just didn't grab a hold of them. 
the way I should have. And while I don't have a whole lot of regret, um, I'm glad I learned the way I learned as opposed to just like, oh yeah, this is how you're supposed to do it. But where I found that was through some mentorship and through, you know, through community with seeing other guys retire and get out, them have problems going down, you know, trying to find their solution at the bottom end of a bottle, at the bottom of a bottle, but still some guys being able to have that strong family component. And then it sort of started to get me like reset into yes, being a father, being a husband and doing this piece is my mission. And that's my purpose. So, um, cause they're my teammates for life. You know, it's not like they're going to rotate after two years. So that really helped. But with my work now, um, it was, it was, t- it was tough, but to be able to find my niche uh, within the, within the industry and to still be able to round, you know, different tier levels in the community um, has been beneficial uh, for me. I mean, it really helps find that mission and find that purpose and give me value because I think that that's what we're missing in society, especially younger men is that is being valued and having that value and, um, and knowing that our job is really just to pr- protect and provide and, not only for yourself, but obviously primarily for your family, because that's what's in our DNA, in our male DNA for thousands and thousands of years is that to perfect and provide, to go out and hunt and then to provide shelter and to provide food and to provide these different types of things so we can have sustenance and live. So that is what's really gotten me through a lot of this, a lot of the shit and a lot of like the, you know, the dark times, um, is realizing that this my baseline is this caveman genetics that i have to be able to protect and provide um and then throughout the you know the the small little things like i write a lot um i'm trying to uh reading some good books and the writing has really helped you know i was working with a coach a couple of years ago and she told me Nick, you, you, you guys are all the same. You're all fucking chess players. You like to use all these different things with your words and you're so fancy with your words and you can dance around this stuff, but you really can't get into your emotions and just sit and feel your emotions. And she got me to start writing. And so like the journaling has been going really, really good. And I try to be an advocate for it for other guys. It's like, just write. Like, I don't know what to write about. It's like, don't write about anything. Just almost like free association. Pull up a pen and paper, pull up your phone, listen to a song, inspire. It can be dark. It can be light. It can be whatever you want, but at least you're getting something out, you know, and that in itself is a form of art, you know, like just, just put it, get it out. You don't have to share it. Nobody's going to read it. Just write because it's very cathartic and very therapeutic. Even if you reread it and you like see all these typos and, and you're like, man, this sounds like I'm fucking, I'm a sociopath. Just write because it'll get better. It will get better. Just practice at it. Well, two things that you said. Firstly, purpose being your family. I think that's a really important conversation because they were without you for, you know, in in my profession, every third day for 14 years, you know, in yours, you were deployed months at a time. So that, you know, and I think also you're, you're rebuilding yourself. I mean, I know you're still beating your body up at the moment, but I mean, 14 years for me hormonally and mentally, you know, there's, there's a lot of fixing that I'm doing right now. But the other thing is that purpose. And I think that it's hard for some of us in uniform to understand that there are so many ways to serve. There are so many ways to keep giving. And it could be you become a counselor or a fitness coach or, you know, write books or, you know, whatever it is, or or create the best new shoots for people that are going to deploy 10 years from now. But where I've heard people struggle you know, if we're talking about the the role that they go into is is the seal that becomes a realtor or goes into finance. 
I think it's because there isn't that service. So there are so many ways to serve, but there are also ways not to serve. And I think for, for a lot of us that did that for so many years wearing a uniform, I think it's important to kind of ask yourself, all right, what kind of position do I want to want to go in? And when I lay my head on the pillow that night, do I still feel like I made the world a little bit better? Yeah, I think that we, I, I remember having this, uh, this, this misconception that it's like, wait a minute, like I've been in combat and I, I led people and I was the you know TL on this and I did all this. I sh- you should bring me in as the fucking president of this company <laughs> the, or the CEO or the CFO or something. So no, it doesn't. It, uh, I, and I had that mindset for a long time um, and it doesn't work that way, uh, unfortunately. But I think that um, finding that, that, that purpose uh, for me, you know, finding that purpose for me has been, has been crucial, you know, in late 2017, now I wasn't sure if I was going to talk about this or not, but I think it's really important because I think that I, I, I think that a lot of people can relate to this. So I retired in October, 2016. We moved here the summer of that year. And in throughout that, that year was really tough for me. Um, I was just doing some coaching and some jumping, making very little money. I mean, thankfully retirement and, and some other stuff uh, has financially kept us afloat. Living in Florida is a lot better than living in Southern California financially for obvious reasons. Late 2017, um, I left my wife and we split for about two years. And I went off and just wanted, I was in such a dark place that I didn't like myself. And so that resentment carried to, you know, basically went to her and I resented her for it because when we first met in 2005, when I moved to San Diego, she, not that I had a whole lot of life problems or life experiences, but she was there for everything and she solved everything. She was part of these, these training trips, these deployments, these losses, these gains, you know, with every, with every victory, there is a fall, you know, I mean, part of all of it. And then now that I'm retired and we've had two kids, I'm retired and I've got all these like issues that I can't seem to wrap my head around about my identity. She wasn't solving it anymore. And so this resentment built up and this wasn't just, you know, over the span of a year and a half, the span of probably a good, like, you know, nine, 10 years, I was dealing with a lot of darkness. And so finally, in November, 2017, um, I said, I have to go and we split up and I stayed close and we you know, co-parented um, and we went into, I dove into work really, really hard. And May of 2019, um, I did a retreat with a buddy of mine who encouraged me to go with him came back about six, eight months later and things started to kind of come back to me. I, I forgave myself for the things that I've done. And I started to like myself again and have some self-compassion, sort of remap things, if you will, in my decision-making process. And I could sort of see the forest for the trees where all these years before I thought I was. Um, and then early December of 2019, uh, I bought her a car uh, for her for Christmas. Totally surprised her. Like, what the fuck? What? And then I asked her on a date. And then uh, about three months later, we got back together and we've been together ever since. So it's a hard one though, because I put that woman through a lot, you know, and uh, the fact that she took me back and without skipping a beat to really let me back in and allow us to create this 
this this bloodline, this Kush family bloodline, uh, this legacy for both of us um, has been, yeah, I'm <laughs> grateful for her every day, man. So, well, firstly, thank you for trusting me enough to share that because it is it is important, and so many people struggle. I've watched firefighters that I adore, you know, incredible men literally start to crumble before my eyes and and you know just head over heels with their wives and all of a sudden their marriages start devolving um and it's you know it's the job and i always tell people look if, if someone was a shitbag day one on the grinder then they're probably a shitbag and they got some stuff from before but if they were you know loyal and 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 all the the things that we admire in someone and then five ten years later they weren't anymore then it's the job you know, it is the job. So you talked about a retreat, you know, what kind of retreat was it? And then what were the observations that you made that you were then able to forgive yourself and navigate yourself back to that incredible man that you were, that she fell in love with in the first place? Oof, man, that's a good one. <laughs> um, so I'll just keep it, um, at surface level. Um, but it was, it was, um, yeah, it was like a four-day retreat um, down uh, down south. So I, I do want to keep it surface level, just for some of the some of the other re- for some other reasons. Um, and it and it and it allowed me to really, I mean, it allowed me. It forced me to take a long look at my not when look at my life. When I when I say I look at my life, it, it wasn't just here. So it it forced me to take a long look at my life here. So from birth, childhood, present, and then projections of the future. And that was a huge eye-opening experience for me. And it caused me throughout the following, you know, six, eight months, I just, I paused and I was in like really deep and good thought. And I knew that I would eventually, I felt drawn that I would find my way home. I didn't know that she was going to say yes. I was really apprehensive that she would say yes. Um, and so this long buildup of, is this going to happen, um, was really nerve wracking. But I wasn't, I wasn't super, I wasn't hyper-focused on it. I was really focused on finding some compassion in myself. And it's like, what I've done and what I've been through, whether it was by, you know, because of me or not because of me, just by circumstance and being in combat and, you know, these, these different atrocities, but I was able to finally take a look inward, which then helped me view things outward a lot better. Um, so I could, the biggest thing was actually to find to like myself again, because I didn't, I didn't for the longest time was to actually appreciate what I actually provide and what I give and what I, what I receive because of it. Um, the self-compassion I think is literally the, a lot of, can solve a lot of, uh, can help open doors to, for, for solving a lot of problems for us down the road. Yeah. Well, again, it's a powerful story, you know, because the job does have an impact. It just does. It's just the bottom line. So to be able to navigate back and for your wife to have the forgiveness as well, I had a, a guest on Chris Fields who became a good friend. And he, if you think about the Oklahoma bombing, there's an iconic, tragically iconic picture of a firefighter holding a dead toddler. And uh, that was Chris. So you imagine you talk about anniversaries. Every year that that happened, his picture is all over the magazines, all over the, the TV screens. And he had a complete, you know, spiral downwards. 
and ended up being unfaithful and ultimately was able to get help navigate his way back and his amazing wife Cheryl took him back and they're still happily married again today but i think you know these we need to hear this because you fell in love with with an incredible first responder soldier whoever it was and then they went to war well then they did what we do for 10 20 30 years doesn't give you an excuse to behave you know in a certain way but it's a reason and if a couple's dynamic is able to navigate that and a person's going to put in the work and get help, then there's hope for some of these relationships that are struggling right now. It's true. Yeah. You know, and, and she's the, <laughs> she's the, the best and she's the best, she's the best kind of best kind of person. And I'm very fortunate, but also sometimes unfortunate because she has her doctorate in clinical psychology. So, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so you get what I'm, you get where I'm going with that and she'll be okay with it. I said that. Um, but yeah, so she's very analytical as well. And so, um, she looked at things, it was really hard for her not to, to, for her not to look at things obviously with a huge bias because I, I completely upended her world, you know, by doing that and, um, for us to continue to work on stuff because it's, everything's a process. You know, you just go to the gym and peek out at your deadlift or bench press and then that's it. I'm good. You know, you still, it still takes discipline. It still takes practice and, uh, commitment for sure. So. Yeah. But that's what that's what I want to be good at. You know, for so many years, I want to be good at this, 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 and this. I want to be good at being a dad. I want to be good at being a teammate. That's what I want to be good at. And the fact that she never told me that's what you need to do in order for this to be successful, that I figured that out on my own was uh was one of my bigger accomplishments uh for myself, you know, at least in in the in the headspace world, was that. I realized that this is what I want to be good at. I want to be, I want to be good at being a husband. I want to be good at being a dad, you know? So. Well, I think that's what a man is. And we've had lots of conversations about this, but you know, the, the kind of two dimensional facade of masculinity is, Oh, it's the seal. It's the firefighter. It's like, no, we're we're a yin and a yang. You know, we're also a father, a husband, a lover, you know, you, you can, you can be shooting a terrorist or you can be handing a little girl, a chem stick, still the same seal or, or EOD operator, but, you know, two sides of the same coin. All right. Well, then one more area I want to hit before we go to the closing questions. Um, February last year, you and I both were part of a round-the-world trip. Um, yours was 7x7. Seven seven, mine was 7x. When I say mine, it was my friend Ryan's, uh, Ryan Parrott, the Navy SEAL, who, who was spearheading that. We went round the world, and the goal really was to break down <laughs> these these incredible humans um, and uh, kind of plan how to how to train them for it, break them down, which they did incredibly successfully. It destroyed us, and then how do we kind of put the pieces back together again? Um, yours was, you know, I know there was some kind of human performance studying going on as well, but also there was an actual record attempt with your group. So, talk to me about your experience of circumnavigating the globe skydiving. Jeez. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I got to give it a little bit of history, uh, not to, not to repeat it too, too much from, uh, from, the from, from earlier, but the, it was July, um, 2021 that, uh, my former teammate, Mike Sorelli, uh, gave me a call and Mike and I had done, uh, two deployments to, uh, Iraq in 2006 and in 2008. And we had lost touch. He would gone, he'd gone over to the East coast and, and I was staying on the West coast. And then we, you know, every once in a while conversations would come up, but then he reached out to me and kind of cold called me and said, I have this idea. We'd like to do, uh, seven skydives on seven continents in seven days. And I was like, bro, you are, you are, you are 
biting off a lot on this one, you know, just to do that logistically. Um, and so we started planning. I had a really good friend um, who had been to all seven continents and who actually held the skydiving record uh, for all seven continents. He had done it in like six months and like three weeks, I think. Um, and his name was Tom Noonan. And Tom was a, a world-renowned tandem master, tandem instructor. So he ran the tandem program for United Parachute Technologies, which is a manufacturer, sort of the, the birthplace of tandem skydiving here in DeLand. Um, and so Tom was the, the pioneer sort of leader for that, for the safety and training for that program. Sadly, we were planning in October 16th, 2021, Tom died. So now our go-to guy for all this overseas and all of his experience worldwide was now kind of in ashes. And so, you know, went to Tom's funeral. That was really tough because Tom was a very dear friend of mine. Um, and then we sort of circled the wagons and decided to keep going. And so fast forward to summer of 2022, um, we started to get some funding. Mike and Andy Stump, uh, who was part of, uh, who was a big part of the, the expedition team, um, they got on, did a podcast with Joe Rogan and was able to do a pitch for the overall nonprofit we were raising money for, which was Folds of Honor. And Folds of Honor is a nonprofit that does, raises money for kids' education scholarships for deceased, disabled first responders and uh, service members. Um, and so they do basically private education. Um, and so we wanted to raise money for Folds. And the big reason we wanted to do it for Folds was we really liked their mission. Um, and we had an eclectic group on our team. We had, you know, a ranger, we had a Canadian guy, we had a couple of team guys. Um, we had a Marine scout sniper. Um, and then we had myself. And so we had this group where if we went to the Navy SEAL foundation or another foundation, it's nothing against the Navy SEAL foundation or any other foundation was that in order to get support from some of those foundations, you had to have had been an SF guy or a ranger or a SEAL. So with folds, it was, it didn't matter who you are. If you're a first responder, you know, hundred percent disabled service, you know, veteran or deceased cert family of a dependent of a cert deceased service member, you qualify. That was kind of, we, we looked at it was that like, we want to spread it out and push forward from there. So we had a training camp in October with the guys where, you know, kind of, you know, getting a feel for everybody, you know, jumping, you know, we had some low jump numbers, some high jump numbers. And so we were just trying to get some reps um, because all we were doing was jumping. Then we did, um, you know, and along the way, I was having to do uh, paperwork for all of these respective locations, Antarctica, the drop zone in Chile, drop zone in Florida, Barcelona, Egypt, UAE, and Australia, and working all of those, these pieces. So we had seven skydivers, and then myself was going to be, I uh, was the tandem instructor, and then Jim Wigington was my tandem passenger. And Jim Wigington was Tom's passenger for the other seven continents. So Jim had already had the record as a passenger but he wanted to do it in seven days. So, and he's, I think he's now 74 years old. So good on him. <laughs> um, so yeah, then in um, right before new year's uh, of December of 22, we flew down to Chile and we were down in Chile for about a week or so. And then flew down to Antarctica and then the machine just started. Um, you know, we were, we tried and we sat there and looked at like, do we build a contingency list? Do we have, you know, do we like kind of basically do this as if we're planning and, you know, a big operation? Yes and no. I mean, we were prepared for delayed flights, lost baggage. We had those types of contingencies in place, but we didn't really see the point of building out and trying to get super creative with this long list of contingencies. And then, you know, 
spending all this unnecessary time trying to figure out this enigma, we were going to basically deal this with this puzzle as it came to us. So we planned it and we planned it flawlessly. And if it, we knew that it wasn't going to be executed flawlessly, but we were able to respond. And that was why we built the team that we had was the guys were incredibly resourceful. You know, they had, you know, connections in aviation, they had connections with finance, they like all these, you know, it's a lot of social media presence. So there was all of this resources that opened up this huge scope that we could tap into. And we weren't, none of the guys were like professional skydivers, you know, like there was two of us that do this for a living on the entire expedition. You know, Fred Williams, the president of Complete Parachute Solutions has got 15,000 jumps. I have 12,000 jumps. And then right behind me is somebody with like 4,000 jumps on the team. And that trickles all the way down to the lowest jump number was 200 because that was the base minimum for us to go to Antarctica. So we weren't really wasn't a comp complex skydiving you know, event, it was just, it was a logistical enigma is what we were basically going through. And the idea was to do something really, you know, loud and over the top to get attention, people to follow us kind of Forrest Gump style, and then, you know, raise money for folds and talk about folds of honor and tell the story of, of our fallen comrades. You know, I got to talk about um, Mark Lee, you know, who was in my platoon and was shot and killed um, on August 2nd, 2006, while we were on a, you know, on an assault. And the friendship and relationship I formed with Debbie Lee, his mom, and her foundation, America's Mighty Warriors, doing you know traumatic brain injury treatment, and so it was a, it was a really good experience overall. And then the platform that we created in order to tell the story, and I think the documentary is due to screen, I think in February or March of next of this coming year. And uh, but it was physically, like as you know a kick in the ass. I mean, we were monitored by whoop and whoop did a small, you know, pretty cool little study for a few of us. Um, and then it took me about three weeks to fully get back into the swing of things. I mean, sleep and body aches and like, I wasn't sure what was going on, but it was definitely, we were smashed for sure. Yeah, it was brutal. I mean, obviously ours was a couple of months later in, in February and ours was, I think total travel time was, I think we were gone for 12 days because we were in South Africa for a few days. Antarctica fell through like, last last minute like you know hours before which was a was a shame but um it was funny i'd actually reached out to Kirk parsley about the sleep supplement and then he's like oh i'm already part of something i'm like oh really and he was part of yours so i remember yeah. seeing <laughs> pictures of of the man who really opened my eyes about sleep deprivation exhausted on your social media posts as everyone yeah. was fast asleep in an airport <laughs> we didn't we did not intend for it to be a competition and i'm so glad that it wasn't perceived like that you know really you know i mean maybe between you know uh you know like sort of like in the team room if it were you know like if ryan and i or because i i met ryan years and years ago and i don't know if he remembers me but like on the west coast so, but it really like big picture it was just like hey we're both doing something really good for you know for, for for veterans and that that was basically it in their families so but yeah kirk parsley's awesome yeah my, i still I, he just got married a few weeks ago and uh yeah i still take his sleep remedy every night because it's awesome yeah it's great it is and everyone was impressed they all had it he, he donated some for us as well and, oh good and, and people yeah, were good. blown away how well it was i've used it for years myself yeah one more area I've only done two skydives ever, both tandem. One was in New Zealand, and then one was out of a Russian helicopter over the pyramids. Now, I know there's a very you know iconic picture from your trip of you guys all you know holding hands with the pyramids kind of in the middle of the circle. Talk to me about that jump for you. I mean, you're so experienced already, but was that a pretty, uh, pretty uh, powerful moment for you, even though you had so many jumps? 
Yeah, it was. Um, I, you know, out of all the out of all those jumps, Antarctica was still my favorite, just because there's been so few uh, to ever jump over Antarctica. And also Antarctica is like another planet, you know, I mean, it's, it, it just, it doesn't feel or look like it makes sense, you know, but the place is amazing. And hopefully you get to go back there next December, uh, next year, doing some other stuff with Folds of Honor um, with the company that runs uh, the Union Glacier camp down there. But the pyramids, yeah, there was really iconic. It was funny because I think it was about a 14 mile flight from the airport to the pyramid location. And then do you guys land on the golf course as well? um no we landed right next to the pyramids like right next to the pyramids yeah so i don't know how they managed to make that work but it was it was pretty crazy yeah there's a couple of different companies that sort of uh that operate down there and it was just happened like the one that we were with yeah we landed on that golf course just on the east side i think of the pyramids but it was really it was really cool i remember you know getting out with you know because i had i was doing the tandem so i had jim attached to me and it's more like yeah, I kind of went, Jim, move your head so I can see, you know, like, cause he's, <laughs> but, um, you know, we, when we were under, under canopy, uh, flying, uh, yeah, it's really surreal because, uh, you, you see the very tip top of, of the pyramids and the way the sun is hitting it and the shadow that it casts. It's just so, it's like, it's so perfect, um, in a very imperfect type of like kind of world almost, it seems like, but, um, it was a really good, it was really cool. You know, we landed and we packed our, packed our parachutes and they had tea and food and everything like that. And they said, Hey, do you guys want to do like this VIP tour of the pyramids? And like, no, we just want to go to sleep because we were, <laughs> we were so smashed. I mean, in hindsight, maybe we should have, but not, there wasn't one person that said, Oh man, I kind of want to go. Everybody was just like, we had like four hours. We can get sleep at the hotel. We're going to get some sleep. So it was, it was cool. <laughs> but um, it was, I think that it was surreal to finish. Um, you know, it was cool. Like when we did the jump in Florida, our third location, a lot of our friends and family and a lot of people from folds of honor had flown down to support us then to Barcelona, then to uh, Cairo, UAE, and then uh, to Perth. And Perth was was great because you had all these people following Black Rifle Coffee because we had two Black Rifle Coffee guys with us. And um, and Andy's obviously social media presence and following Legacy Expeditions. It was neat to see like 40, 50 people just come out of the woodwork just to be there when we finished it, take a big picture and drinking beers at 1030 in the morning, Australian style. Um, it was just, it was cool. It was great. You know, it was great to to see all these people around the world, you know, whether it be part of skydiving or not just come together and support. I mean, they're supporting a nonprofit that's based in the United States that is educating the kids of us, you know, citizens. They didn't care. They just liked being part of what we were being part of. And that was like something that I remember thinking at the end of it was, with all this stuff that's going on in the world today, where it kind of diminishes your hope in humanity, stuff like that restored it for sure. Hundred so. percent. Yeah, that one of the highlights for us, I think, was uh, London. So the lads went off and did they did a, a base jump out of a crane, I think, in in England. Yeah, but, I um, saw that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And that, I think one guy had a very low opening as well, from what I understand. Not one of our team, but someone that came along. Um, but. The, the you know, Leo and the other guys were doing the marathon in the park, and I was there, kind of you know, at this this place, and they were doing loops. But I'd got the the firefighter charity and uh, Royal British Legion Industries to come over, 
And it was, it was again, like you said, a bunch of you know Americans that are doing this run, and yet all these people come, and then people that were running in the park started joining them and doing laps That's with so them. That's so cool. And like you said, it was, so just, cool. it was a beautiful moment. It's freezing, and I'm English, and it was still fucking cold. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah Feb- so February, powerful. February. Yeah, that's so cool. Yeah, no, I love that that how it you know how it how it unveiled itself because I remember when we announced it in September. I think someone from Seven X Media had to you know popped a comment on LinkedIn or something like that. It was a good comment. There was the it it never felt like there was any hostility. You know, comp- I mean, competition is good, right? And that's that's in our nature. You know, uh, a good friend of mine, uh, DF, he had said uh, that. Com- the combat is emotionally and physically taxing and it's competition based. So that just kind of goes into who we are. It's like, yes, we're going to push ourselves physically, emotionally, and even in the gym at home in San Diego, shit's competitive, you know, when it comes to each other, shooting, jumping, anything it is, it's like, it's in our nature to just continue to, you know, to, to be competitive with one another for sure. So it was cool that this was not, that case it was like we were kind of boosting up we could probably could have in hindsight we kind of boosted each other up a little bit better but i think it's really cool that it was uh it was one right after the other and it wasn't like one was any it was any more significant you know that was great yeah no exactly two two good causes going on simultaneously for sure it's awesome all right well then closing questions before i let you go first one i love to ask is there a book or are there books that you love to recommend it can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated well definitely uh one of the the first one that pops out it's a really easy read and i know it's been recommended probably you know very extensively is tribe by sebastian younger because i think that what he did in that book was he took all of his time and what he saw, you know, in the '80s and Beirut and every everywhere he's been, and then really wrapped it up with uh, his like, I mean, his shock and awe documentation of um, of Restrepo. Uh, I think that a lot of his studies and interviews and everything like that really compiled into that. You know, I mean, he may not say it, and I don't, I don't know him personally, but it was, it's to me, it's a, it's a short book, it's, a, it's an easy read, but it was like his swan song. I mean, it really is everything when it comes to the tribe uh, because I think that it's not just military combatants and things like that. I think that it serves in our community. It's like, man, be a good neighbor. Like, like that's because that's how we were, you know, not that many, not that, not that many years ago is we were living in, you know, living in caves, living in tents and we had to be good neighbors and take care of one another. And I, that's the overall sort of premise I got from that. And then one that I'm reading now by Eckhart Tolle is The Power of Now. Actually, a friend of mine gave me that book. And that has really helped me in my mind sort of just be more of an, of an observer of uh, the, the thoughts that come up and like the dark stuff that doesn't, is not self-serving. I can just sort of like sit back and just, just observe and it don't have to dwell in these negative, these negative areas, you know, and sort of even in the positive areas, I don't treat any of them differently because I think that there's, there's service in both of them and growth in both of them is really just to be an observer and act uh, when it's appropriate. Um, and it's helped it's, you know, that has influenced me to write and uh, listen to really good. I love like good classical music and a lot of piano work and, and string work. It's like, it's just, it's soothing. It's calming. But when I go in the gym, of course, it's, you know, metal and, you know, standard music, of course, but um, there's a balance to what I'm finding. Um, what I surround myself in my environment is what is who I become. So that's, that's, I think that's true with all of us. So 
Absolutely. Well, what about films and or documentaries? Oh, man. Well, I mean, we're going to stay on the Sebastian Younger kick, but definitely I, I watched Restrepo again with my son. And I took that off of um, advice that Andy Stump, when he interviewed uh, Sebastian Younger a few months ago, I remember texting Andy about how good how good of a of an interview I thought that was. Andy had said he watched Restrepo with his kid. Um, and his son is a little bit, he's a little bit older than mine. Uh, mine will be 15 next week. And that was really cool. A really good experience because it wasn't, it wasn't, um, I didn't talk to him a whole lot through it. We just sort of sat through it. And I was able to give my perspective of my combat of what they were going through. And I respected what they were going through. It wasn't that mine was any more significant or because I'm not, I was part of the special operations. It wasn't like that. It was just like, this is what fucking people are doing. You know, these kids are four years older than you, you know, so kind of talking to him like that and, and giving him a little bit of perspective um, with that. I think um, let's see another one. Um, um, How to change your mind. Uh, it was a really good book. Um, and I think that that goes hand in hand with a lot of the treatments that uh, he, he has been doing. Yeah, that was a really, that was a really, really good book. I highly recommend that one. I won't get too much into that one, but how to change your mind. It's a pretty common one. I think that people know about these days. So. Absolutely. All right. Well then the next question, is there a person that you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions oh. of the world? You know, man, when I looked at your list that we talked about this the other day was like, man, I like to see Debbie Lee, Leif, JP, Donnell, Richard, Rich Graham, Jock, you've had Jocko on, I believe, yes. right? Yeah. Um, I think, honestly, I think Jericho would be a really good one to tie the brothers together, especially um, to see how, yeah, I think Jericho would be a great one to have on. You know, he's a good friend and he's, he's a travel machine. Um, like I said, he's got this like Anthony Bourdain sort of feel, you know, he loves food. He loves writing. You know, he kind of, these are my words, you know, he might not be crazy about it, but he sort of put down the gun and picked up a camera, you know, was doing, he's got so many interesting stories when he was in Ukraine Afghanistan, Ukraine, and then he was just got back from uh, Israel. He was there for about 10 days uh, earlier this month. You know, so he's got a lot of really unique perspective. Um, I love his his overall picture on just on uh, on on what we're doing kinetically overseas. Another one um, that would be phenomenal um, is a good friend of mine would be Eric Prince. I think that for years he's gotten a lot of you know he's gotten some bad press. The great thing about Eric is he's so well read and so incredibly educated and so incredibly smart that he does. I, I'm jealous that he can really not let that shit bother him. The man, the guy is the guy is rock solid and a, a very good friend. So Beautiful. Eric Prince would be great. Yeah. Well, yeah, if you can help us make both of those happen, I think that'd be phenomenal. Absolutely. Yeah. You got Thank it. you so much. All right. Well, then the very last question before we make sure people know where to find you, what do you do to decompress these days? So, um, a lot of it, uh, is, is my therapy is found in the gym. You know, I think that that's like getting more and more common. I think that 315 on the bar is always going to be 315 on the bar. I think that no matter what you're doing, you can get in the gym and it can, if you put 40% in, you're going to get 40% out. Um, I think it's the most honest place with, that you can be with yourself. Um, so that's why I love it so much, but that's also why I kind of hate it sometimes. Um, but the gym is great. Um, I've been playing golf a lot. Um, you know, I, I, I picked it up when I was in high school. 
And then um, a little bit while, you know, being on active duty and then moved to Florida, it's like, okay, got time, may as well start swinging the clubs. And my oldest, uh, both my kids are actually starting to get kind of into it as well. So that kind of brings a new little bit of enjoyment, you know, enjoyment to it where it's fun for me. Golf is very calculated. And so I can definitely get, you know, definitely go down the rabbit hole on it. But I like golf because you can experience pretty much every emotion known to man in the span of about four hours you know, love, hate, victory, defeat, you know, the whole thing. So, um, that's been a really good experience. So. Yeah. I feel like happy Gilmore when I'm on the bloody golf course, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it shows me how bad my anger actually is. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well then for everyone listening, where are the best places to find you online and or social media? Uh, so I'm, I pretty much stick to just Instagram. Um, so I'm at Nick Cush 237. Uh, pretty easy. Um, I'm the owner operator of my own LLC. It's called Deland High Performance. And I do, my primary means for that was to be able to, you know, create the company for tax purposes. Also, I can bid on government contracts. Um, but I really just use that for when I get sole source from different organizations or different agencies to basically contract me for work. Um, but I'll do anything from skydiving to any EOD support or diving support or anything that's in my wheelhouse um, that I can do. And then I also work for Performance Designs uh, Incorporated, which is a parachute manufacturer here in Deland. And that's where I'm a test jumper and project lead. Beautiful. Well, I want to say a shout out to, to uh, Jack Lane as well. I know he's another mutual friend. I know you work Definitely. with him too. So put that in before we leave. Well, Nick, I want to say thank you so much. I think it's been a, an incredible conversation just hearing, you know, your journey starting off on, on boats and then EOD and then ultimately in this, you know, skydiving world that you exist in now. But also for the transparency i think in you know our generation it was raised on arguably a pretty two-dimensional facade of masculinity there's no better antidote than the man to the man that says oh i'm too tough to have feelings than having you know someone from eod a navy seal sas firefighter police officer whatever it is being courageously vulnerable and so by telling your story today i know that it's going to resonate with a lot of people so i want to thank you so so much for being so generous with your time and coming on the behind the shield podcast today i appreciate it james and i really i really want to thank you for what you're doing uh with all the guests and the messages the multiple like messages that you're sending and the projects that you're on and involved in so i really appreciate what you're doing for the community for uh humanity in general so i really appreciate it i think that, that sometimes might be underappreciated but uh but i sincerely appreciate what you're doing